1: This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Louise Feely, was recorded in November of 2012. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Milman talks with Louise Feely about designing book covers and designing for restaurants, about why she prefers working for small businesses, and about the importance of sketching. When I get excited about a design, it's in the sketch stage. It's like, ah, this is it. Now I
2: really have something. That's usually the one that will work.
1: Here's Debbie Milman.
0: Louise Feely is a master typographer a lover of food, and an extremely Italian, Italian Italian-American. When you step into her studio, you see it all. There's an amazing collection of Italian tins stacked beside an equally gorgeous collection of Louise's own designs. There are stacks of jams and wines and crackers. There are boxes upon boxes of restaurant matchbooks. And there's a wall covered with books from Louise's time at Pantheon, during which she designed over 2,000 book jackets. It was through that job that Louise met her husband, the design historian, author, and educator, Stephen Heller. He sent her a fan letter. They met. They married. Now, 30 years and many collaborations later, Stephen has written the foreword to Louise's new book, a monograph on the design and typography of Louise Feely. It is called Elegantissima, and the title could easily apply to Louise herself. Louise Feely, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here. So Louise, you stated in Elegantissima that you can never, ever forgive your parents for having the bad judgment to leave Italy and come to the U.S. where you were born. Why did they move here?
2: Well, I have to be fair. They were very young. They really didn't have a decision in this matter. My father was 10 years old when he left Sicily, and my mother was a newborn when she uh, left So it was Calabria. really their
0: gran- you said was your grandparents. The grandparents you can't forget. Who I never met, so I have to blame <laughs> someone, right? <laughs> So you've also said that the final indignity in all of this was that you were born in New Jersey. <laughs> now, with absolutely no offense to all of our New Jersey no, friends I, I, and I listeners. No, I want to
2: apologize publicly right now. I'm sorry. It's, it's not about New Jersey. It's, it's more about growing up in the suburbs in the 50s and 60s.
0: I think that might have positively influenced your work as well because there's something so incredibly homey and cozy and down-to-earth about So much of your work. I mean, of course, it's all elegant, but it's also so approachable. Mm. Yes. Well, my
2: work is very personal, but um, New Jersey for me was not homey or cozy. No? No. I wish. (laughs) I dreamt
0: of living in a homey and cozy place. Well, when you were 16, you traveled with your family for the first time to Italy, and immediately upon arriving in Milan, in the haze of jet lag and the oppressive July heat, you were struck by a billboard featuring an Art Nouveau rendering of a couple in a passionate embrace against an inky night sky. And it was an ad for Perugina, and I understand that this was a really pivotal moment for you. What happened?
2: Well, I, I kind of fell in love with, with Italy, food, and type all at the same time because it was all there in that billboard, even though I didn't even know what that billboard was advertising. All it said was Baci Perugina, and, and I later found, I knew that Baci meant kisses, but I didn't really know what this was for. I didn't know if, if it was a product or what. But this is when I realized, that's and it's the same feeling I get every time I travel to Italy, I feel like I've come home. And I felt like New Jersey was a mistake. I <laughs> never was meant to be born there.
0: So that very same summer, you traveled to Italy. You also sent away for an Osmoroid pen that was advertised in the back of the New Yorker magazine. Yes. And when you received it, you taught yourself calligraphy. Mm-hmm. How does one teach themselves calligraphy? <laughs> you <laughs> go, us.
2: You go, well, there was the Speedball lettering book, which. I know a number of people who still have that book. It's a classic. The other thing you do is you go to the public library and you check out the only book on calligraphy. And then you just keep copying over and over again. It's This was also at the same time that I bought my very first Dover book, which I still have and which is still one of the closest to my heart. It was a book on uh, illuminated initials, which which I still use. And it was 250 at the time, which was wow. quite a deal. But, um, you know, it was just filled with pages and pages of, of beautiful examples of illuminated initials. And that's when I started doing these illuminated manuscripts of Bob Dylan lyrics that I would sell to my classmates.
0: Can you describe any of them? Do you still have any? Do you, any of your high school friends have any that have found I you don't, on Facebook? No,
2: I don't know. But that's why I'm not on Facebook. Uh. So they can't find me. Um, no. And, I, and maybe now that we've done this show, maybe some of them will People show up on eBay. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I don't have any anymore. But... Um, I remember spending a lot of time sitting at my desk listening to Blonde on Blonde. And especially, um, there was one complete side that had the song, Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And I just, I love that because it was re- a really, really slow beat. And it was like perfect for the pace of this very meticulous work.
0: Now, if the students, if your classmates had similar requests for a particular song, did you create? a rendition of what you'd previously done a repeat? Or did you do something completely Um, original each time? No, it was always original because I had that big Dover
2: book. I had so many choices.
0: Wow. So there you were in high school already forecasting what you were going to do for the rest of your life. Except I didn't know what graphic design was. So when when did you know? When did you, I I mean, I think that you've stated in the book that before you even knew what graphic design was, you knew it was something that you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So was it just sort of having a business, being creative or was it something very specific about typography and
2: well, lettering when i was in high school it was called commercial art which was pretty unsexy you know yeah. and but i was always fascinated by letter forms even even when i was very very young i think my earliest creative memory was when i was 3 or 4 carving letter forms into the wall above my bed really i couldn't read yet i don't even know if i could form words, but I was fascinated with letter forms. And I still remember my parents, well, not only would they take away that carving tool from me every day, but then the next day I'd go recover it and, and go back at it. But I also remember my parents um, saying to me, because I used to make these alphabet books all the time, and they, they would say, you know, why do you have to use 26 pages of paper when you could just put all the letters of the alphabet on one page? And I said, well, that wouldn't be right. You know, each letter has to be looked at
0: on its own. Did you have favorites? favorite letters?
2: Mm, Well, I hated an L and F. Of course, everyone hates their own initials. I don't know that.
0: (laughs) Don't you hate yours? I never thought about it. Well, you've got good initials. No, but
2: everyone hates their initials. I hate my name, but I
0: don't hate my initials. uh, That's all part and parcel.
2: (laughs) But um, actually, I I remember I I took a watercolor class, which I struggled with because watercolor is so difficult. But they always made us sign our name in the corner. And here, you know how hard it is to, to sign your name with a pencil on damp paper. No. So instead I thought I <laughs> <laughs> You should try it sometime. So instead I thought I would make a monogram of an L and an F. I thought that would be cooler. But that's when I learned. I learned very early on that there's no way you can do an L and an F without it looking like a swastika. <sighs> Unless you do it in script. Oh my
0: god. Which is why the, the monogram on the cover of my book is in script. Wow. It's almost like – and especially since I know so much about Steve and his background. It's almost like the two of you were just destined Destined. to be together, like the most perfect couple in in the universe in terms of how you fit together and your interests and – my gosh! And at the beginning of the interview, listeners, I actually said to Louise, "No, we're not really going to talk about Steve because I've interviewed Steve five <laughs> times, but I want to talk about you." But now here I am. Well, I knew once in, I brought yeah. up the
2: word swastika, yeah, it was all over. Yeah. yeah,
0: you can't not. So, so you went to Skidmore College, where you stated that anyone who couldn't paint was labeled graphically oriented. It's True. It sounds like it sounds like a disease. <laughs> yes, that's what it felt like. And is that how you were described? as, as yes. I mean, I can't imagine you being a bad painter. You're so painterly. I was a bad painter.
2: I just, I don't know what it was. I I love color. I love drawing. But painting was beyond me. Fortunately, my my intro to painting teacher was also the graphic design teacher. And he was an Italian-American. He had gone to Cooper Union with uh, Seymour Quast and uh, Milton Glaser. And he took me under his wing, and it it made a huge difference.
0: And so did he – I know that you learned typography in in school by getting your hands dirty, literally Literally. and figuratively You set metal type. So what do you think that that taught you, that skill of being able to set metal
2: type? So much. I mean, just – I remember I used to get so obsessed with setting metal type that I I used to see it in my sleep, you know, fitting everything in exactly right and tightening it up and – but just the, the whole tactile quality, which I think is a really important part of what I do as well, was really important and something that I've, I've still taken with me. Just being able to print your own type and, and feel the impression from that, it was extraordinary.
0: Now, speaking of forecasting one's life, is it true that your senior project in college was a hand-lettered Italian cookbook?
2: Yes. And it was for the same teacher I just mentioned. And so it was very interesting is that when I had my first critique with him, because it was an independent project, he was more critical of the recipes than he was of the calligraphy.
0: Really? Yeah. And it's very particular.
2: About and is the that marinara. because of his own background? Yes, of course. Wow. Yeah.
0: So did he grade you on the menu? <laughs>
2: on the recipes? He did. Well, I had to fix up the marinara recipe before I could graduate.
0: So one of your first jobs out of college was a designer at Knopf, mm-hmm. where you also worked on designing illustrated books. How did you first get that job? Because it wasn't your very first. You had a no. couple of other forays Yeah, the before. other ones were, were
2: too short to even describe in the book. But getting the, the job at Knopf was, was a very lucky break. All of, my, all of the important moves I've made in my career, I think, have all been just a matter of dumb luck and good timing. Really? Yes. Yes, well, I, I
0: find that really hard to believe. I think that dumb luck hits you once or twice, but not an entire career.
2: Well, maybe it's knowing when to seize upon the dumb luck.
0: Well, let's talk for a moment about being hired at Knopf. How did okay. how did that happen? Did you know that that was what you wanted to do, or absolutely was it absolutely not? Okay, I, so that was the dumb yeah. luck part.
2: Yeah, even though I was always always interested in books, I loved books as a child. And growing up in an Italian-American household, there were no books in the house except for hand-me-down copies of Reader's Digest condensed books. Really? And my parents were both school teachers. And I later found out that this was very typical of Italian-Americans. They did not collect books. Books were a luxury for them. And instead, you know, food was the, <laughs> the linchpin of the family, and that, that was okay, too. But. Right.
0: So so did you hear about the job at Knopf from a friend or from I a, was an instructor? I was
2: recommended by someone who I'd been freelancing for who was very vague about it and didn't really even have high hopes. He just said, well, I recommended you for this, but go meet Bob Scudelari, who was the um, corporate art director at, at Random House, which has all the different imprints, vintage, Knopf, Pantheon, et cetera. So I went for the interview, and he was less concerned with my design abilities and more concerned about my getting along with the author because the author had stipulated in her contract that she had to work directly with the designer on the Knopf premises. And she turned out to be this fabulous feminist filmmaker from England, Midge McKenzie, who was very, very well known there but not very well known here who had just done a documentary that was going to be featured on Masterpiece Theatre called Shoulder to Shoulder. It was about the women's suffrage movement in England. And it was a fascinating documentary, and she wanted to make this into a book, but she wanted it to feel like a documentary film. So they put us in an office together, and no one had any idea what to expect, because I had never done a book before. She had never done a book before. But here I had this incredible role model who had a great eye, and I had all of these great life lessons that I learned from her. Like what? Well, she told me about her affair with Truffaut. <sighs> oh, wow. And which films they exchanged. I thought that was romantic. But anyway, it was it was an incredible time. And we emerged from the office with, with this book that came out quite well. And I realized that I I liked doing books. But I needed a real job. And this was just full-time freelance, so... They would always try to find a way to keep me, so they found another picture book for me to do where I didn't have to work with an author. And then I just...
0: Landed at her blue Ballons one day on your twenty fifth birthday, you were hired as a senior designer by the legendary Herb blue Balloon. yeah, so I know it 's a really interesting story, so can you give us give us some of the salty tidbits
2: well I just someone had recommended that I go see him, and i said no 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 i 'm not ready to to see her blue ballon yet and in meantime he was my idol that that was the dream job for me, but i didn 't feel like my portfolio was ready. And this person who recommended me said, no, you're ready. So he made a call. I had an appointment to see Herb. And I don't know if you know this, but Herb was extremely taciturn. He was not a loquacious guy. So he just flipped through my portfolio and didn't say anything. So finally I had to be the one to speak up, which is not really what I usually do either. And I said, well, are there any job openings? And he said, well, actually I'm trying to get a budget for UNLC which was new at the time, Upper and Lower Case Magazine. And um, I should know something in January, so um, maybe something will happen. So I knew that I had to find a way to keep in touch with him. So I said, well, have you ever thought of doing an article on rubber stamps for UNLC because I collect rubber stamps? And he said, no, that sounds interesting. I said, why don't I drop them off to you? So then I would have the reason to keep in touch with him because, of course, there was no email in these days. You just had to call so I, I dropped them off and I would call like, you know, every couple of weeks. And his, and I got to know his secretary very well. And we're still really great friends. And finally, one day I called and she said, yes, he's seen them. You could pick them up. And I thought, oh, no, now what now what do I do? So I went to pick them up. And he was sitting at the end of his office Herb her was had his office in this beautiful converted brownstone. And He was in this private office that was very long and narrow, and he was sitting way at one end of this bowling alley, and I was at the other end. And he had his back to me because he was always just sitting at the desk making comps with both hands, you know, because he was ambidextrous. And he was just hunched over the drawing board with his back to me. And I realized, I better say something or, you know, this is over. So he did say one thing. He said, what's new? So I said... (laughs) So I had to go through a little dance and tell him what I was doing and everything. And then, then finally I said, by the way, you had mentioned that there might be a job opening. Is, is that still happening? And he said, well, no, I never got the budget for that. But somebody just gave notice today. Could you bring your portfolio back tomorrow? And that's how I got the job, walking in the door at the right time. At the right time. But dun, dun something that you had, been,
0: well, you, but you had been calling and calling. And... Yeah, right. Well, so you write in Elegantissima about what it was like to watch Herb Ballin sketch. And I know that you found it really mesmerizing. And aside from the fact that he was ambidextrous or because of the fact that he was ambidextrous, can you talk just a little bit about what you saw when you were watching? It was fascinating. And I, I think about
1: Herb
2: when, whenever I'm sketching because for me, it's all in the sketch. That's the real beauty of graphic design. And if you can achieve what you've got in the sketch in the finished piece, you're very lucky because I think that's the best part. And his sketches were so extraordinary because he, you know, he had this shaggy line, which I think someone described as uh, looking like he had been drawing it in a stagecoach. So, <laughs> but it was this very, very wobbly line, but he knew exactly how to comp out serif gothic or avant-garde, whatever font he was working with. And then when it would go downstairs to the mechanical department to put it together, it would always match perfectly. You didn't have to, you know, I mean, you still had to work at it to make it look right. But he knew his fonts. It was, it was as though he was tracing it in his head. And they were rough, and at the same time, they were anatomically perfect.
0: And you mentioned just now that you felt that it's really important to be able to have that I guess the deliberation of the sketch, perhaps, in the final? Mm -hmm. Why? What is important in that regard Because
2: that's the soul of the design. That's what it's all about. When I get excited about a design, it's in the sketch stage. It's like, ah, this is it. Now I really have something. And that's usually the one that will work. I mean, every now and then I'll say that, and then we try to put it together, and it doesn't work. But that's the great thing about design. Always full of surprises.
0: So after two years, Herb decided to relocate his studio, to a converted firehouse, which would have cost you your private sun-filled office. And you took this as a sign to move on. And I was struck by that and how you wrote about that in your book. And I can't help but want to know if you're a big believer in signs. Yes. (laughs) And so this was the moment where you felt... This is it.
2: This is it. I was ready to leave, even though I didn't have a job lined up. I started looking around. but It really wasn't about the office, though, was it? I went to go visit the converted firehouse, which was beautiful. But it talk about soul. This had no soul. And plus, I was going to be in the bullpen in the basement, which was not very appealing to me after having this beautiful office. But it, it just didn't feel right for me. And that's when I realized that it was time
0: to move on. And so you went to a new job at Pantheon, an imprint of Random House, um, which you've said was distinguished by its extremely mediocre jackets. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so yes. it was, so was, it, was that the reason you took the job? Because you knew that mm. you could have impact? Or? No, no.
2: The reason I took the job, as I say in the book, is because Bob Scudellari, I went to go visit him and I, he said, oh, well, actually, we have some job opening up. And I said, well, is there a Southern exposure? And, and he said, <laughs> yes. And he said, I'll take it.
0: So it's I was really serious. true. Okay, I, I, sure if that was I had no myth. idea what the
2: job was, but <laughs> I figured it had to be better than being in the basement of a firehouse.
0: So you describe in in Elegantissima how, given your Lubalin training, you automatically thought of a book jacket first in terms of typography. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on Absolutely.
2: that. Absolutely. When I would start working on a book cover, and this is the same process that I use now, no matter what I design, whether it's a logo or a, a, a book cover or whatever – I would take the title of the book and I would draw a a five-and-a-half by eight-and-a-half rectangle on my tracing pad. And I would just take the title and I would write it over and over and over again, just sort of letting it speak to me. And I would go through the whole tracing pad sometimes. And it would go from being this very amorphous jumble of letters to something more precise. And that's when I realized that this was a, a typeface that didn't exist and I would have to figure out how to make it. That was a very important part of it for me. And that's still – that's the way I do logos. That's the way I do everything.
0: So this was a time where I understand you were really determined to break away from the constraints of the big bookseller look that dominated book jackets at that time. Yes, And that you wanted your book jackets to be more intimate. And I'm wondering how you were able to sell this notion to the publishers and to the authors.
2: Well, I did it very slowly and very quietly and very cautiously. I just took little baby steps. But the the good thing was that because Pantheon had these very mediocre covers, no one ever took them seriously, even though they had a roster of very impressive authors. They had Simone de Beauvoir, Michel Foucault, Jean-Paul Sartre, books that you would want to read, but from the looks of them you wouldn't want to touch them. They were also very left wing. And fortunately, at that time, the president of Random House was sympathetic, but things changed later on, and that's when I took it as a sign to leave. (laughs)
1: Um,
2: I just started, uh, as I said, very cautiously, just making little changes. I, I started with, okay, what have I got here? I've got five and a half by eight and a half. I can't change that. I've got two or three colors, and maybe sometimes four colors. I can't do much about that. And the paper stock... I can do a little bit about that. So the first thing I did was I started introducing matte lamination, which, believe it or not, was not being done at the time. People were scared that the books would get dirty or whatever. So that made a huge difference, because I was really going for the tactile quality again. And you know I wanted people to be able to pick up these books and want to own them, uh, to find them as, as objects of beauty that they wanted. So starting with the matte lamination, then I went after the colors, you know, trying to explore color as much as possible because we only had three-digit Pantone numbers in those days. And now that we have the the four-digit numbers, it's a lot easier. But I used to go to hardware stores and collect paint chips of the colors that I really wanted to use. That's what I used for the lover cover, for example. And then I would send those to Protocolor when we had our comps made. And Protocolor made these beautiful comps. And then I would send that comp to the printer and have them match it, which of course drove them crazy. But they did it.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about the lover. I bought that book at that time that you first designed it. So the first edition of your cover. It's a the book The Lover by Marguerite Dura. It's, I have to say, I think one of the most famous book covers of the 20th century. Um, Very unusual, very ethereal, very beautiful, very haunting and poignant and heartbreaking all at the same time. How did you go about designing that book?
2: Well, that was very interesting. That was actually the second design that I did for that cover. You're kidding. No. Wow. no. No, because originally, you know, they told me about the book. I saw that photograph of her, which was incredible. And I said, let's use the photograph on the cover. And they said, no, no, no. It's because it's not really a memoir. It's not really a novel. It's sort of, mm. so." It's sort of both. It's sort of both. So I said, okay. So I did something completely different. I did this. I looked at a lot of deco carpets from China. They were called nickels carpets, I think. And they were very beautiful. And they, they had flowers on them that looked like they were airbrushed. So I'm still going for that same soft, muted understated feeling. So I devised some typography integrated with the, um, the floral motif, and they didn't go for that. And I said, well, you know, I think you're right. I think we should use the photograph. And then they finally got it. So I used the photograph, but with the shaded lettering, which, which had kind of started with that original idea. And then I just, her photograph was so compelling, all I had to do was, was just have it airbrushed so it was vignetted and, and then had the shadow type done to kind of echo that. And then it was done in matte lamination with muted colors. And this was this was a breakthrough design for me Huge. Be, because, well, mostly because this little book, this little understated jacket design, was Pantheon's first bestseller since Dr. Zhivago in 1958. So booksellers took note, and Publishers Weekly, which is the trade rag, actually wrote an article about it. And they interviewed booksellers, and they actually said in print that this book became a bestseller because of the cover, which was huge. So after that, the salespeople didn't fight with me anymore.
0: It's remarkable. You start one of the chapters of Illigantissima describing a call that you got from a publisher who asked you to design a book jacket with this description. We have an Italian Nazi fascist homosexual novel that's just perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about being typecast at that point then as the interpreter of sensitive foreign fiction. I didn't even know there was a niche called sensitive no, foreign no, nor fiction. Did I. <laughs> Is that still the case? Do you still have people that call you specifically to do sensitive foreign fiction or sensitive? Foreign anything.
2: No, now they call me to do sensitive food packaging. You know, at, at that time of my career, everybody had lover wannabe books, you know. And now everybody comes to me because they want their product to look like Bella Cucina. Right. So.
0: But you state that all of the skills that you developed in book publishing ultimately became the basis for all of your later forays into restaurant identities and food packaging. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how, how so.
2: Certainly the, the approach to typography and what I described about designing uh, the type for book covers and, and how that transferred over to the way I designed logos, but also that need for the tactile quality that I was striving for so much in book publishing. Once I moved over to restaurants, I was able to take that a lot further because all the menus were always special paper stock, whereas at Pantheon, the only way I could ever get a special paper stock is if I traded in a color. It's like, okay, I'll do this in two colors if you can give me this this textured colored paper. So there was the whole thing with papers and and more interesting ways of printing I could, you know, I could foil stamp and deboss and you know all kinds of things that I always wanted to do. And then going from there into food packaging which literally took me into a third dimension gave me a lot more to work with. Just different kinds of paper, different containers, you know, there there were many many more options. But I think it really all started with with just trying to make as many inroads as possible in book publishing where no one ever had bothered to do that because there were so many constraints.
0: There are very few designers... That have been so successful in numerous different categories where there's been a very intentional decision to go from doing one thing to another. Mm -hmm. So you were doing book jackets and then you made a very specific decision to then go into restaurant design and then food packaging. How were you able to break away from being considered the sort of typecasted interpreter of sensitive foreign fiction to now being able to be the person that people might go to for sensitive foreign packaging? It's not as easy as it sounds.
2: No, and people always tend to to know you by the work you did 15 years before. So it's taken me until fairly recently to shed my
0: Sensitive foreign fiction persona?
2: Yes, (laughs) Yes, to shed my sensitive foreign fiction
0: persona. (laughs) But, I mean, how do you say one day... I think I wanted to go into this now and then be able to do it with real authority mm-hmm. and then ultimately with real success. I mean, there are very few people that have done it. Paula Sher has done it. Right. Karen Goldberg has done it where they've literally gone from doing one kind of work to then doing quite another right. body of work.
2: Well, in each case, I think I've eased into it because when I started my studio, I knew that I had to do something other than books. Those were the only clients I had when I started my studio because I had always been freelancing for other publishers. So I started my studio based on this clientele that I had. But I knew I had to go beyond that. And I wanted to as well. So that's when I started going after restaurants. And it it takes some time. It's a whole other world. Whereas in publishing, you're dealing with people who are used to dealing with designers. And you know that in most cases, you'll get paid for that. In restaurants, you know, very often the first conversation I had to have with some of these people was trying to explain to them why they had to pay both me and the printer. Wow. Yes. (laughs)
0: Now, you say you were going after restaurants. Yes. Um, Your first bestseller was The Lover. What was the first restaurant success that you had?
2: Oh, I don't know if you'll remember this one. It was Prefix. Of course. Ah, Yes, it was a very colorful client I had there. But the good thing about Prefix is that he was very restless. So he would get bored with the restaurant and rename it, and I'd do a new logo and graphics program for it. So I got a lot of mileage out of that particular space because he changed it three times.
0: So how do you go about determining an identity for a restaurant? How do you make that happen?
2: Well, usually I sit down with the owner if it's possible to have a conversation with them. Many of them, again, they're not used to dealing with designers, but they're, they're not always very articulate. So um, I'll sit down with them and try to get a sense of what the concept is. If there is an architect, I like to talk to them and look at drawings or materials or anything that I can get a clue from. But very often they, none of them can be bothered, and I'm kind of left on my own, and I I have to kind of play 20 questions with them just to try to figure out. Okay, well, what makes you different from everyone else? And it's always a challenge. It's um, there are very few times when when I had really something to work with. However, once I started working with architects like Larry Bogdanow, who I collaborated with many times, who was a wonderful, wonderful restaurant designer, it was much much more satisfying because we could really share our ideas. And um, I had things that I could give him and he had things that he could give back to me. And, you know, it it used to remind me a lot of when I was doing book covers and there was another art director down the hall who was designing the interiors for these books. And we would never be able to work together. Like, she usually had to design her interiors way before I was doing the, the cover. So, so, then when you look at the book, you look at the cover and you open up, but the inside has nothing to do with the outside. And that's how I used to feel about doing restaurants. <laughs> they would very often walk me through a gutted space and say, and this is going to be here, and this is going to be here, and and these are going to be the colors. And then by the time it was finished, it had no resemblance to what they had described to me. But that's just the nature of the beast.
0: Now, I happened to visit a couple of the restaurants that you designed in the last couple of weeks in preparation for our interview and yesterday I went to Marcier and I went recently to Artisanal and one of the things that I noticed about being in the restaurants was how integrated the style of the logo was to the overall decor and that's not something you see in every restaurant mm-hmm. it felt very integrated for oh. lack of a better word thank you and and I was wondering if that's something that was intentional on your part if it was something that you ended up doing directly with the restaurant tour, and how hard or not hard is that to to be able to accomplish?
2: It's very hard. It's very hard, especially as I said, when you're trying to get direction and you're trying to get details from people, and they the details don't exist yet. But I, for something like Artisanal, I was lucky because they already had the space. Adam Tahani had designed that years and years before, and meant you know many previous incarnations. It was his first restaurant design, and it was La Coupole. And he designed the light fixtures to echo the light fixtures in the real La Coupole in Paris. And they stayed there after La Coupole closed and a couple of other restaurants that were not French moved into that space. So finally, when Artisanel came in, it was, you know, it, it was appropriate to have them back again. But, yeah, it's very important to me to, you know, in whatever nuanced way I can refer to the interior so that it feels Correct. When you're sitting there looking at the logo in this space, you feel like you're in the right place and you're not looking at someone else's logo.
0: Well, it's interesting because you've stated, you stated in Elegantissima, and I also have had a conversation with you about this before where you've stated that you create logos, not brands. But when I was visiting these restaurants again, I was actually taking umbrage to that comment. <laughs> and I thought, no, this is very much a branded environment. Even though it might not have been created as a brand with specific brand tenants, there was a certain. Beauty and, and uh, of consistency in, in all of the environments that mm. I was I was going to in, in preparation, um, but I do want to talk to you about the famous comment that you made. And when asked <laughs> what is the difference between a logo and a brand, you answered about five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and I was I was hoping you weren't
2: in the room when I said that at the dye Line conference last year.
0: <laughs> I was. You were. Oh. <laughs> but I but I I'm curious as to well I want to know why you feel that way because I I do feel. That the process might be bloated when certain people create certain brands, but is there really a difference? Is there a philosophical, rhetorical difference between a logo and a brand that's separate from the conversation about money?
2: No, it's really about the money, I think. And the fact that I don't like working with big companies and I don't like brand speak. And I'm sorry to be saying this in your branding program. Well, we
0: try not to have a lot of brand speak. We want to be much more authentic about the experience. But that's a separate conversation. Right. Good.
2: But, in fact, the only time I ever used the word brand, I tried it to never use it. The only time I ever use it is when my clients are trying to do something destructive with my logo, and I tell them, no, you can't do that because it will dilute the brand.
0: So it does have so, power. Yes, yes. <laughs>
2: Although it feels very hypocritical for me to say that. But, um, yeah, it's just that I I prefer working for smaller businesses where I can work more intimately with my clients, and it's very satisfying for me to watch them succeed and hope that it had something to do with the logo, even if in a very small way. So that's what that statement is really about.
0: So I want to talk to you about two big brands or brand dead projects that you've worked on that have been incredibly meaningful to me. Uh, the first is the Good Housekeeping logo. Uh-huh. And, and this is a logo that the Good Housekeeping Stamp of Approval has been in our world since 1909. It's been redesigned about every decade and a half or so, and right. the most recent iteration is designed by you. And so I want to know if, if you can give us any background. I don't know how confidential the whole process was, but it's such an important and, and well known piece of iconography and yes. i'm wondering if you can share how you how you went about redesigning it
2: i was skeptical about it to tell you the truth because like i said i don't like working for big companies and i was afraid i would have a terrible experience but i went to meet with these people and it was a group of 8 women which i thought was very interesting and what i always ask especially when i am approached by a big company is who are the decision makers because the thing that is always the most dangerous for me is when they say oh well the decision makers are too busy to meet with you and that's when I say I won't do the job. You know, the decision makers have to be at the meetings. I have to hear it directly from them. I don't want to hear someone else trying to second guess for their boss. So they said, "No, it's just us." So I thought, okay, that's doable. And I went. I went to meet with them, and I showed them some examples of before and afters because that usually, which I have in the book, which is usually, I think, a good way for people to understand how I work, and. Um, They said, okay, and then I gave them an estimate, and they did actually get back to me, and they said, we we decided to choose someone else. And they chose a very big branding firm, and I was relieved because (laughs) I was moving my studio at that very time. And I told them that, and I thought, why don't I just shoot myself in the foot? I said, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm moving and I'm going to need some extra time if I'm going to do this, because I really didn't want the job. I didn't want it because I, I was a little bit nervous about it. I didn't think it was right for me. So why,
0: um, why, why? Why wouldn't it be right for you? It seems like the perfect job, I mean, especially now that we see the results. It,
2: well, now that we see the results, right. yes. So it's taught me a lesson that maybe I, I shouldn't just think no every time that I'm approached by a big company. So I totally forgot about it, and I moved my studio. And the day after I moved my studio, I got a call from them, and they said, well, you know what? We didn't like what the other studio did, so we like to have you do it. Wow. So this put me in a very good bargaining position. In what way? Well, I was really glad to go second because I'm sure what, what happened, I, well, I know what happened, was that the first agency tried to do something new and really different, which is what they were asking for. And when they gave them that, they were like, oh, no, no, we don't want that. Whereas if I had done what I ended up doing for them and I had been chosen first, they probably would have been disappointed and they probably would have wondered, well, what would have happened if we took it a little bit further than this? So it worked out perfectly. They were very easy to work with. And I made these little books for them because when I went to the first meeting, I brought my little letterpress limited edition... The travel uh, books? Pro, pro, no, no. Actually, the logos A to Z that oh. are in the book. You know, and they're limited edition. They're done in letterpress. And I had asked how many people were going to be at the meeting and I think they told me six. So I didn't have enough for them. So I didn't want to pass them out in the beginning. So I, at the very end, as people were leaving the room, I said, well, I, you know, I kind of like was talking... the floor. I said, well, I have these little promo books if anybody's interested. And they were like women at a sample sale. They like (laughs) dove into them. It's like, oh my God, this is beautiful. So I thought, okay, I know how to do my presentation now. So I made little books for each of them. You know, I don't even know how to do these presentations because I don't do them very often, but I, I usually just sort of make up my own way of doing it. And this seemed most appropriate because I was showing them A number of different directions, but within each direction, there were a lot of different options, just, you know, small changes. So I wanted them to really be able to follow along with the PDF that I was showing. So they loved that, and they made a decision immediately, which was
0: pretty surprising. So two questions. First, for our listeners that might not be aware of your logo book, A to Z, can you share a little bit of detail about that marvelous project?
2: (laughs) Well, yes. This was before I had a website and I had to find a way to promote myself. So I decided to choose the most impractical and expensive route. (laughs) um, And it, it, it occurred to me one day when I realized that I had done a logo for almost every letter of the alphabet from O cafe to Zelda, the fashion designer. And if it hadn't been for Zelda, I'm sure this never would have occurred to me. So I decided to do this little letterpress book called Logos A to Z, and it had 26 logos, and some of them were repeats. That's when I realized I had done a lot of restaurants that started with the letter M. And then it became a mission for me. It was, you know, it was very well received. But I would only give it. I would never do this in a blind mailing by any means. I would, I would only give it personally to someone who I thought really appreciated it. And they were all numbered by hand in the back. So then, once this started, I was on a mission because I really wanted every letter of the alphabet. So, so I did volume two, and I got a few more letters into that one. In that volume, I started doing it in letterpress and four color offset because there were some logos that were too hard to reproduce otherwise. And by the third volume, I was unabashedly offering a discount to anyone who had a business that started with a, a, an X or Y. And I finally got my X and Y. Well, for, Oh, and I also needed a Q before Didn't that. Did you just take a job because yes. the logo started with yes. the
0: letter, the company's name started with a Q? <laughs> well,
2: I actually, I did something very stupid early on because someone came to me who had a a landscaping business and they wanted to name it Quercia, which means oak in Latin and Italian. And I was so excited because I still needed a cue at that point. So I stupidly offered to do the logo for free. And we know that you don't do that because that just devalues your work. And he he went away. He never came
0: back. So my second question I want to ask you is about the second brand that I wanted to bring up or the second big project, not, not so much a brand, but your love stamp. No, I mean, could there be anything bigger than designing a postage stamp? But not like a two-cent stamp or a three-cent stamp like the Fargo guy, but like the full Monty. <laughs> <laughs> the full Monty, like a full-on stamp, a love stamp that everybody wants on all of their important letters yes. that they still send out, their wedding invitations and Valentine's Day. So how do you yes. go about designing a stamp? Well, that was very challenging. It was, And it was very scary because – they had asked me to
2: design either a love or a wedding stamp. And I started focusing more on the wedding concept first, because I really wanted to do something that same-sex couples could use for their weddings. And I, th- I had what I thought was a great idea, but they didn't get it. And then I had to go to plan B. So then I decided to focus on love stamps. And It was terrifying because it's a very small size. You know, as I say in the book, this is the smallest thing I've ever designed and in the largest print run. It was less than an inch on one side and it was a print run of 250 million, which is really scary.
0: That's amazing.
2: And I've yet to find one that's in perfect register. Really?
0: Yes. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. That's terrible. I
2: don't know. Well, you know, you need a loop to know that, so... And I carry one in my pocket at all times now. Every time I pass a post office, I go in and check it out. And it's like, no.
0: Louise, I love (laughs) that about you. I think I love everything about you. For all of our listeners, please go out and buy Elegantissima. It is the most beautiful design book that is available now. And it's not only a wonderful story, but it's also something that you just constantly find yourself learning from. For more wonderful stories and to see Louise's studio for yourself, go to www.louisefeeley.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.